But first things first, let's just start with where we are at the moment and what has led to this eventual outcome uh, in terms of the progress that you've made with previous employees. For sure, um, Gugu. I think many of us will have forgotten what 2021 was like. Um, as traumatic as the events of 2020 and 2021 were, the world has largely moved on, right? And and we've forgotten. Mm. But at that time, we'd had our employees uh, working remotely, fully remotely at home for well over a year and were starting to consider, based on medical advice and healthcare advice and, and all of that, we're starting to consider how we start to return people safely back to the office. Because we recognize that whilst there are benefits to remote work and we continue to uphold those benefits today, we we have a hybrid working policy. We do also recognize that there's an importance for employees together. And that's mainly to build culture, to build team cohesion, and fundamentally to aid in things like onboarding and assimilation, particularly for new employees who are joining our company. And so as we were considering all of those scenarios, we really had to think deeply about how we return people safely how we contain them in our buildings, considering that at that time there was still the need to wear masks, um, still the need to sanitize extensively, and also just to protect people who were vulnerable, who needed a level of of reasonable accommodation. Mm -hmm. And then at that time, we decided to mandate vaccination for the reasons of keeping our employees safe as they returned back to the office. Now, mandatory vaccination was, was well advised. You know, we were consulting with a number of parties as we made those decisions. And there are employees who opted not to be vaccinated, and we had to respect that choice. However, what we insisted on at the time was a negative COVID test every time they came into the office, and we were willing to pay for those COVID tests. Mm -hmm. But when those employees then didn't want to adhere to that testing requirement, unfortunately, it led to a process of dismissal based on the rules and a policy that was in force at that time. Mm -hmm. As you rightly said now, Google, we're at a stage where um, we've decided to to settle with those employees, 32 cases that went before the Labour Court, um, and we've resolved those and, and the matter has been removed from the court role. Too but I think it's important to say, like, at the, it's not a victory. It's not a victory for in one party versus another. I think the good thing is we've reached an amicable agreement and each party was exercising their ra- rights during what was a global crisis. Hundred percent, and I'm glad that you uh, elaborate on that because this does come with a lot of lessons, which I will ask you to reflect on in just a moment. But I'm keen to understand the 32 cases. I do recall an October article in 2022 highlighted that you wouldn't necessarily reinstate any of these employees and and settle. Is this still the case? Um, reinstatement is challenging if you consider when um, when this case kind of uh, played out and when those employees were terminated. There was a recruitment process that followed. Rule roles were filled. If any of those employees, of course, want to be considered for roles in future, they're welcome to and they will apply through the normal process. But reinstatement is not on the cards. Mm-hmm. Billy, were you also able to quantify, I guess, the cost of the legal dispute or the settlement at all? I'm not able to, Gugu. Got you. What I'm also keen to understand, though, I guess as we look back at this lesson is, uh, of course, you know, the changes in terms of policy. And uh, I'm assuming the mandatory vaccination policy is no longer in place. But again, as you've mentioned, you still prioritize the health and safety of your employees. What lessons really do come out of this uh, uh, experience? Sure, I'd have to reflect even further on that, Gugu. But but what I can share, you know, and this is um, the ongoing engagements we had with employees at that time were largely rooted on this that the best thing we can do is to be guided by the advice that we have at that time. And at that time, we were guided by science and the laws of the land at the time. 
there was never an oppressive intent by the company, certainly not, which is why we had options for employees who didn't want to vaccinate. But we have to balance the interests of all our employees, those who choose to vaccinate, those who don't choose to vaccinate, those who are unwell, those who are well. Um, and that's our responsibility as an employer. And so balancing the health and safety of all our employees was always our intent. And, and we've stuck to that. And I think it was the right outcome. Mm -hmm. The reality is this is like a one in 100 event. COVID is, is something that none of us could have predicted or understood. And the best way to make decisions as a leader um, in times of great certainty is to act on information, on sound information, on advice and guidance. Um, and to be able to pivot when you need to. Um, at first, we were completely remote. Then we decided to slowly fill our offices back with employees. Mm -hmm. And we're a hybrid working company now. All of that is guided by advice, by science, but also prevailing preference, right? It's employee mm -hmm. preference around how people want to work. And we continue to be guided by that. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's the lesson. You know, it's, it's, we, you need to constantly be um, open to different perspectives consider the advice and take the best decision you can with what you have. 100%. Deliwe, I've also had the pleasure of engaging uh, you and your, your peers at Old Mutual uh, on a multitude of factors regarding the business. And one thing that also uh, I think is important to reflect on is uh, one of the outcomes uh, that was released in your uh, annual general report earlier on this year regarding the establishment of the minimal uh, annual total guaranteed pay. And maybe you can elaborate on this in the progress thus far, but also how this prioritizes the S in ESG uh, for a company like Old Mutual. For sure, Kuku. Maybe a few comments on that. So we announced a 180,000 minimum salary um, for all of our employees um, in South Africa. And we made a commitment to never hire below a stated pay line for employees. All those who were below 180,000 after our annual salary increase was implemented got an additional top up to take them at least to 180,000 rand for the year. Mm -hmm. That's a massive commitment to make and to uphold and one that we will continue to uphold into our future. And we made those disclosures voluntarily. Um, it's, it's not a disclosure we necessarily have to make. I think companies are under pressure right now from a pay disclosure perspective. Um, there's no regulation that asks for it. We did it mandatory. We did it voluntarily because we feel it's important. Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing. I think the second thing is just that there's a growing wave in terms of understanding um, the impacts on pay and particularly for those who are the lowest paid individuals. Um, as Old Mutual, we were engaging quite a bit in the Companies Act regulations that are that are in the process of being promulgated that really start to try to get companies to be more open about how they pay and their pay gap disclosures, which is something that I said we've done voluntarily already. This is something we continue to engage very openly on and have made a number of commitments to employees and will continue to do that in the fullness of time, um, particularly as you start to look at um, differentials and more lateral or horizontal differentials than vertical. But there's there's work that needs to be done. It needs to be done in a way that's responsible and accountable and led by facts, right? Led by analysis of the data that we have to write anything that we feel isn't quite in, at the level that it needs to be. So it's it's a massive commitment, but one we uphold and one will continue uh, to, to, to grow in, I believe. 100%. Taliwe, such a pleasure speaking to you. We'll have to wrap it there for today, but really appreciate the lessons and learnings that you've shared with us and clarity on this particular matter this evening.
Thank you, Gugu. Thank you very much for having me and thank you to your listeners. Fantastic. That's Thelewe Ross, Director for Group Strategy, Sustainability, People and Public Affairs at Old Mutual. Well, we continue the conversation now with uh, a senior labor relations uh, employee specialist, uh, a good friend of the show, Kajiso Libete, just to reflect, I guess, on some of the learnings uh, and the changing dynamic of the working environment in South Africa, given uh, the outcomes of this particular case. And of course, as has been mentioned, it's uh, again, just an agreement, an amicable agree- agreement that's been made by Old Mutual and uh, former employees who at the time perhaps were dismissed uh, due to non-compliance with the mandatory vaccination policy and uh, additional factors there. Kajiso, always good to have you with us as our local Labour analyst. Uh, and, and I guess this has been an intriguing one for you to reflect on. I recall speaking to you back in 2021, talking about mandatory vaccinations and how this policy will be adopted in South Africa. Uh, and what we're learning is, of course, at the time, businesses, I guess, took whatever measures possible to protect their staff and their employees. Um, and I guess coming about with, with different solutions to it now, recognizing that perhaps, um, you know, uh, uh, we could have handled things differently. But at the time, uh, a lot of the decision making was taken and driven by science. Your thoughts on this outcome, Kajiso? Um, Good evening, Gugu. Um, Good evening to the guests and good evening to your listeners. Thanks again for having me. I I think in in, in as far as how this matter has panned out and um, um, how Ms. Ross from Old Mutual has has basically set out the process of reaching the settlement. I couldn't agree more insofar as marrying what was applied in the past to what is currently happening within the current dispensation that we're in. Insofar as previously we were in an uncertain situation and unfortunately employers had to find some sort of normality. The law at the time through the Court of Good Practice allowed employers to implement a mandatory vaccination policy, having followed a proper process. And if you look at how most employees, especially the more established entities such as your old mutuals, went about that process, Mm. it was in full compliance with that code of good practice in that there was extensive engagements, there were regular town halls, there were exemptions afforded to employees who did not want um, to undergo uh, mandatory vaccinations, and there were alternatives that were also offered. So when you look at it at a at a um, at a practical exercise versus what the law prescribed, one could say that at the time several employers followed what the law prescribed, and that's why they were able to go to um, commissions such as the CCMA and defend their their mandatory vaccination policies. Now there are specific cases that went against specific employers, but when you consider the circumstances, you could highlight and you could pinpoint exactly where they may have missed the steps in so far as the code of good practice set out. Um, when implementing a mandatory vaccination policy. So in, 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 in my opinion, at the time, companies that took a decision, having conducted the risk assessments, having engaged occupational health and safety, were on the right track and so far as when mandatory vaccinations are concerned. And at, well, where we are now, we're in a better position. There's more information at our disposal. And we are once once more at a point where the virus or the um, or the disease itself has more or less tapered down Mm -hmm. to the extent that certain companies have taken away or they've withdrawn their mandatory vaccination policies in the workplace. Very true. What I'm also keen to understand from your perspective, if this shows us, I guess, the, the level of agility and flexibility that we have within our legislative framework when it comes to labor and if this is always a favorable thing. 
Indeed, um, indeed, one has to be agile, one has to be flexible in this kind of environment because in as much as the law may prescribe one thing, one has to try and bring that back into your operational setting and ensure that you are able to carry on with the business of the day. And once you reach a point where specific legislative prescripts are becoming more restrictive, I can put it that fashion, and you are able to break away from that, then by all means, as an employee, you are allowed to implement policies that align to your operational practices to the extent that that, that they are not in contravention of the existing laws that we have in the country. And that's where the agility and the flexibility comes in to say, we will allow um, specific exemptions or we are going to wholly withdraw or, 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 or do away with the policy that was previously implemented. And that's where now as an employer, you need to be open to engaging with organized labor if you are in an environment that has um, organized labor and all your employees to ensure that they are on board. And it also speaks to um, change management of the entire process mm-hmm. where you need the employees buying to be able to achieve certain deliverables within the organization. I'll ask one more, and perhaps this time, you know, really focusing on on, on the labor perspective. And it almost seems as though organized labor here uh, has been better positioned because they have avenues, channels and systems and processes in place in order to dispute, discuss, raise and even agree uh, to the outcomes with, with within these kind of changes that have taken place. Your thoughts on this one, Kahiso, uh, uh, especially if we contextualize this in understanding that there are many other sectors in the South African economy, perhaps which aren't uh, organized through labor structures and are at risk, uh, perhaps, of... Uh, um, being abused or, or, I guess, decisions taken against them that they can't actually challenge? Um, indeed. I think the starting point, Google, would be um, a consideration of the fact that Sasbo as a trade union has around 73,000 members across the financial services industry. So that's a very massive pool insofar as the numbers that they represent and the voice that they have within the financial services industry. And it, it it would be a bit different when you're engaging a single employee who's referred a single dispute versus an organization such as SASBO who's brought a dispute on behalf of 30, 40, 50 employees at a time within a specific employer, as well as going back to the relationship that an employer has with organized labor at the workplace outside of these kind of disputes. Mm-hmm. And that's where some of the engagements tend to happen to say in as much as we may have merit in our cause, and in as much as we may have the facts and the law on our side, how can we reach a compromise that not only ensures that we're able to resolve a dispute, but also ensures that we are not at loggerheads in the workplace when we need to be addressing other issues involved. And I think, in my opinion, that's where organized labor does play a very crucial role in the workplace, in that with the numbers that they possess, they're able to have a more fruitful engagement with employers and they're able to exert a lot more pressure uh, um, when, when addressing these kind of issues. Hundred percent, and I think I think there's a a lesson to be learned there, I guess, in terms of the importance of organised labour and how that continues to play a role in critical sectors of South Africa's economy. Don't even get me started talking about mining. I'm keen to do it with you right now, but I know that that's a whole nother contentious issue. But since I've asked, maybe you can answer uh, your thoughts around the challenges that we're going to see there, especially in the year ahead. It does seem as though there's a number of Section 189 processes that have been instituted within the mining fraternity. And uh, how do you see this unfolding, really? Ongoing challenges, once again? It's it's. It's rather unfortunate that um, that our mining sector faces um, such an uphill battle, especially with regards to the price of commodities, the cost of actually doing mining within the country, as well as, I mean, 
we're very much aware of the impact that load shedding and increased production costs has had on our sector. And unfortunately, we are going to see a lot more of these Section 189 notices uh, being issued. I know there's quite a few mining houses that are already engaging um, employees that are medically incapacitated, employees that are um, reaching the end of their working stage, especially those in their 60s um, who are able to then take early retirement so that they are able to absorb the impact of the retrenchment process, especially to a large chunk of their workforce, which is within the mid-30s, early 40s kind of uh, um, um, age group. And it'll be very important that um, that the mining houses are able to have these kind of engagements realistically. So with organized labor to say, this is where we are financially as a company. This is how much our production costs are. This is where the commodity prices are. Mm. This is our strategy over the next three to five years, for example, so that we start bringing organized labor more into the picture so they understand the dynamics that drive operational decisions. Because more often than not, organized labor is relegated to uh, a a group of employees or a group of individuals representing employees that are put at the lower lower level rungs of the of the discourse and we're not actually bringing them into the discussion so that they understand the decision that companies are taking to try and at least preserve the entity itself ensure that there's longer um, for example a, a longer mining lifespan with reduced costs in as much as there may be a reduction in the workforce but the more we bring organized labor into the picture and bring them uh, um, give them the information that allows them to engage their members and make decisions mm. at the mandate of their members is where we'll be able to get a lot more fruitful discussions from organized labor in these um, Section 189 processes. And unfortunately, we are going to see a lot more going into the um, new year, especially up into the platinum belt as well. Yeah. I know the coal mines in um, um, in Mpumalanga have already started with their processes as well. So it's going to be a bit of a rough ride um, over the next two or so quarters, but um, I think the powers that, that be will be able to navigate them and hopefully um, we can preserve as much jobs as possible. 100%. This is why we love speaking to you, Kahiso, the clarity and insight that you give us. And also, I guess, you know, planting new seeds that speak to a heightened level of uh, skills development within certain sectors uh, so that uh, workers, employees, uh, organized labor does have an understanding as to how to uh, allow and participate in the transition, perhaps, of the portfolio of careers that some of the employees have, uh, even perhaps facilitating the movement into different sectors. Always a pleasure speaking to you, Mr. Libet. I truly appreciate it. If you missed it live, catch the broadcast on kaya959.co.za.